welcome to episode 28 of the Mosin at Large podcast. I'm Jonathan Mosin. Today, with many of us in self-isolation, why not give meditation a try? In this special edition, I'll be speaking with Liam McClintock about meditation and his app called FitMind. It's fully accessible. Mosin at Large podcast. Meditation has been around literally for millennia, and we probably have the Beatles to thank, actually, for raising awareness of the potential benefits of meditation for many people in the Western world. When George Harrison turned the other Beatles on to the teachings of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi back in the late 60s, there's been increasing awareness of the benefits of meditation in the Western world. And as we develop techniques that allow us to measure what's going on in those brains of ours, the science is so compelling about the benefits of meditation that it's often said that if a drug company could put all these benefits in a pill, they'd have the most powerful drug ever made. These days, there are many apps available for your smartphone to introduce you to the benefits of meditation. But meditation is a very broad term. There are several discrete meditation practices, kind of like tools in the toolbox, really, that you might want to use at any given time. Not all meditation apps cover all these techniques, nor do they explain the benefits and the science of each. Recently, I stumbled upon an app that does a very good job of taking its users through these techniques and the science behind them, So you can imagine my delight when I also discovered that on iOS, it is fully accessible with voiceover. FitMind is developed by Liam McClintock, and he joins me now. Hi, Liam. It's good to have you here. Hey, Jonathan. It's good to be here. You went to Yale, and then you got your BA, and you worked in the finance industry for a while. There's got to be a pretty compelling story about how you got from being in finance with a degree from Yale to going to Asia to study meditation. Yeah, I was on a very different path. Um, I was working in finance after college and had the objective of making a lot of money and uh, thought that that was a source of happiness, uh, you know, kind of a myth that we're almost implicitly sold often in in the West and especially in the U.S. And as I started to get into meditation, I quickly discovered that the mind doesn't work that way and that sources of happiness need to come internally. They can't be uh, dependably reaped just from changing or improving your external circumstances. So that realization kind of slowly dawned on me after beginning to meditate and going on a couple of meditation retreats and then reading a lot of the psychological research and the neuroscience, which got me really excited about meditation. I think you find this a lot with successful people, don't you? Um, The Beatles were this way. People who've been successful this way, they kind of think, when I get this next promotion or this next big job or I have this next big number one single or whatever it is that you're doing, I'll be happy. And then you find that nothing gives you that happiness you've been craving. Right. Yeah. And I think we see this. It should be pretty clear by now, just when you look at all the rehab facilities that are full of celebrities. I look at the evolutionary psychology, and to me, that's a really compelling story as to why we should meditate. Our brains are maladapted for the modern environment. So they think that, you know, there's certain cues, um, and, and, and these are often manipulated by companies to sell us products. But, you know, the brain looks at someone else, you know, a celebrity smiling and suddenly thinks that the way to achieve happiness is to become popular. And I think now the research is becoming more and more clear that that's actually kind of a a dopaminergic form of pleasure, which is very different from the serotonergic 
more content stage of or state of fulfillment, which is kind of the real lasting happiness that we're after. And yeah, I think the Beatles and a lot of other celebrities quickly realize this because they get on a dopamine hit, which is this neurochemical that makes you feel a bit of pleasure. But the problem is it puts you on a hedonic treadmill. So you're always trying to get more of it. You're always trying to get that next bigger hit. And for celebrities, it often, you know, they they quickly find that they've got, they can't get it more of it through money and they can't get more of it through popularity. So they start to try to get more of it through drugs. And eventually at some point, the whole thing comes crashing down as they realize it's a bottomless pit. Thankfully, there's other ways to turn and more dependable sources of happiness. Yeah. And we are really being made aware right now of the fact that push notifications and smartphones are are the new drug. They can be very beneficial at a time like this when we all need to be connected. But my goodness, you know, you, you feel that hit of, holy soup, you know, I just got 60 retweets of this thing I just sent and it's, <laughs> and it's so exciting and it's, it's completely vacuous. Uh, so th- that's where we come into to meditation. So often when I talk about meditation to people, and I have to be careful because I can be a bit like a reformed smoker or something, you know, a bit of an evangelist, but often I hear people <laughs> say, oh, I, I go for a walk every day with my guide dog and that's my meditation, or I put on classical music and that's my meditation. Let's define meditation. What actually is it? Yeah, so that's a really good point because I think meditation, especially in the Western world, has now taken on this nebulous form where everything is mindfulness this and mindfulness that. And I think it's good that we're starting to pay more attention to the to the term, but it has gotten a little watered down. And so what I would define meditation as is any of a number of practices and exercises that are systematically training the mind. And it's an umbrella term like exercise. So there's many, many different types as you alluded to, you know, there's, it's kind of like how there's, you know, running and swimming and cycling. And these are all different forms of exercise. Similarly, there's many different types of meditation, but meditation involves consciously applying your mind and your attention in a certain way. And that is rewiring and restructuring the brain in beneficial ways. What meditation is not, uh, this is another good way to think of it is just what meditation is not is when you're lost in thought and forgetting that you are aware. Um, So, you know, if you're going on a walk, um, that can certainly be meditative. But if you're going on a walk and thinking about what you're going to make for lunch, then you've in that moment kind of ceased to be meditating if that's what you were trying to do. So that's how I would characterize it. And yeah, I I think uh, people have different opinions there, but just intentionally using the mind to train the mind in a systematic way. When I talk to people about meditation, another one I hear a lot is people saying, well, I tried meditation, you know, I just sat down quietly and I couldn't empty my mind and I couldn't stop thinking about stuff. That is, I think, the most common misconception about meditation, probably from movies like, I don't know, The Karate Kid or something where people think you've got to empty your mind and think about nothing and that if you can't do that, you've failed at meditation. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's such a common misconception. And if someone has tried to do that, they probably didn't receive the right instruction because the initial step is actually just to sit down and observe your thoughts. And the first insight you gather when you're meditating is that you're not your thoughts, like you can't control them. They're just this waterfall 
of constant inner chatter that's been going on your whole life. I mean, most people don't realize that they're not that chatter in their skull. It's it's actually just um, who they've mistaken themselves to be is this inner dialogue that's always taking place. But if you can observe that chatter, then by definition, you aren't that chatter. You know, there's some part of you that's observing and outside of the the inner dialogue. But the the dialogue won't stop. It won't go away, at least not initially. And it's very uh, counterproductive to try to force thoughts out. That's a bit like trying to calm the surface of a of a, like a choppy river by uh, using like a, a rock to try to calm the surface or something. Um, you actually just want to observe the thoughts, and then uh, slowly they'll they'll start to quiet down. But uh, yeah, it's it's a very common misconception. So that's a little bit about what meditation is, but. Why should I do it? What are the benefits of meditation? Yeah, there are so many different benefits. And I think often the ones that get pitched, and I think they're a good initial sales pitch, are just the physical health benefits, you know, lowering inflammation, lowering blood pressure, increasing concentration, working memory and mood and all of these. I actually think the biggest sales, you know, if I were to pick one reason that someone should meditate, and this is kind of my own personal, I'd say, biggest reason whenever I sit down on the cushion. It's the realization that this is a tool that we need in order to live a richer life. So there was a Harvard study that came out in 2010 that was titled, A Human Mind is a Wandering Mind. What this study showed is that we spend about 46% of our time on average lost in thought. That means not paying attention to what you're doing and instead in some kind of mental simulation, either projecting into the future, thinking about what you're going to do next, your future plans, or ruminating about the past in some way, thinking about you know that awkward encounter you had in the hallway or that memory that's a little painful. And a lot of those thoughts are skewed negatively. And this is, again, just the way our, our minds evolved is that they have a negativity bias. So we spend about half of our day lost in a mental simulation, completely out of touch with what's actually happening in the moment. And most of that time is in a negative state of mind. That's a pretty shocking realization. And it's something that we're not aware of because when you're captured by thought, by definition, you've stopped being aware. We're just lost. You know, We're completely captured by it. Um, it's like I was looking at uh, my my dad's uh, girlfriend's dog last night, and he was in a dream, and he was freaking out, and it was it was clearly a really terrible dream. Uh, I don't know, maybe he was hunting or something, but he was really agitated. And we actually spend the majority of our waking, or about half of our waking lives, in a similar just mental virtual simulation. And meditation: the more you train the mind, the less time you spend lost in thought, and the more time you spend present. And the emotions associated with being present are positive ones generally. Things like gratitude, appreciation, curiosity. These are what we experience when we're in the present moment. And so being present sounds like this very kind of like annoying thing. Like, oh, just be present, you know, just be in the now. But, um, you know, and you can't just tell someone to do that. It takes some training. And so that's that's what I would say is the number one reason, at least that I personally meditate. It's not to improve my inflammation levels or to, uh, you know, generate new neurons in the hippocampus. It's because I want to spend more of my life really living and not lost in, in, a, in a virtual kind of mental simulation. 
Oh, my word. I've done quite a bit of advocacy work in my life, and I got to the point where I realized uh, that I was in that kind of weird dream state for a lot of time, thinking about conversations I've already had that are completely unchangeable because they're past. And I would think, man, if I had that over again, I should have said this, and I would have shown him, and why wasn't I quicker on the uptake in this conversation, and on and on and on. For the last 10 years or so since I've really been doing meditation, I have ended my weekly radio shows with a saying that just says the past is unalterable, the future is unknowable, so embrace the glorious present and live. And when you try to take that to heart, and it isn't easy, it makes such a huge difference to the way you live your life. You commented a little bit about the hippocampus there. Can we talk a bit about what science is telling us about the benefits of meditation? Because I find some of these brain studies fascinating. And in the past, you know, meditation was always thought of as a bit of a kind of a hippie escapade. Um, now it seems that there's a lot of really cool science emerging that says, you know, all these people millennia ago were actually really onto something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is what gets me really excited is that a lot of the science now is starting to back up these claims that for many thousands of years just had to be taken on on kind of on faith. And now we can actually see changes uh, structurally and functionally taking place in the brain. So just to kind of name a, a couple of these that have taken place, and, and I'll just caveat it like, you know, that the neuroscience is still very much in its early stages. So, you know, a lot of these studies need to be replicated and there's there's much, much more research that needs to be done. And also there's, you know, this is just an inherent issue when you st when you're studying the mind scientifically yeah it's just very hard to have like control groups and to really measure effects but early studies are very promising so right now they're showing that long-term meditators have an enlarged prefrontal cortex which is the part of the brain that's responsible for rational decision making they're showing a smaller amygdala which is kind of the emotional fear center of the brain and also a stronger uh, control of the prefrontal cortex this rational more newly evolved part of the brain that kind of makes you human. It has a better uh, control over the emotion center in the limbic system. Uh, they're also showing a thicker hippocampus, which I mentioned um, earlier. This is the part of the brain that's responsible for learning and memory. An overall increase in gray matter, which are the basically brain cell bodies that are important for overall processing power. It's the science is showing an increased amplitude and an increase in high amplitude gamma waves. And these are the waves that typically an everyday person would get some gamma waves every time they like bite into a really delicious de dessert or solve a crossword puzzle. And long-term meditators have these high amplitude gamma waves all the time, even when they're not meditating, they have more of these going on, which is just a sign of kind of heightened awareness and feelings of bliss. And there's also a, a decrease in the default mode network, which is our connected areas of the brain that give a sense of kind of self-referential thinking. Um, in other words, we spend so much of our time thinking we're this little mini me in the head that's trying to like solve a problem and defend its identity and think about how, you know, what does that person think of me? And that tends to subside with meditation. So those are just some early results. And I think it's really promising and there's a lot more research to be done, but it certainly suggests that there's neural correlates for the subjective states of meditation.
Now, those questions that I've asked you so far, I would suspect you have been asked a squillion times, but this one might be new to you, and it, it fascinates me. Most of the listeners to this podcast are blind. Because of how much data the brain processes from sight, keeping your eyes open or closed has a big impact on the meditation. So in your app, for example, you go through some techniques where sometimes you recommend people try them with their eyes open and sometimes you try them with your eyes closed and see which one uh, each individual prefers. What impact do you think blindness might have on the meditation experience or the way that someone practices meditation? Yeah, you know, it's it's a really good question. It's not something that I've studied specifically, but I I have heard other teachers talk about this. In particular, when I had uh, Richard Lang on my own podcast, um, who's a famous meditation teacher who teaches this headless way technique. And he normally, this is a technique where normally what you're doing is you look out at the world and you kind of realize that from a first person vision perspective, it looks like you can't see your head. And so that can kind of drop you into this certain state of awareness. But he was like, look, the technique works too. Or if you're not blind, you can close your eyes and notice that sounds seem to be appearing almost through your head. Like it's not like they stop at your ears. They're going, they're traveling through your body. And this is just a way to experience that everything from a first person vantage point is appearing in awareness. And so that's just an example of how even the techniques that are done open eyed, you can modify them so that it doesn't, you can have the same realization with your eyes closed or if you're blind. And this is another thing that I would really emphasize for folks who are just getting into it is, you know, if you try one technique and it's just not the right one for you, then I wouldn't give up on meditation entirely. That would be like someone who's like, you know, I don't like swimming, so I'm going to give up on all exercise. You know, maybe that focused attention technique just wasn't the right one for you, but maybe what you needed was a technique like the one I just mentioned where you're really getting in tune with sounds. Many blind people face discrimination and people underestimating their potential regularly. Because sight is such a dominant sense, what typically happens is that a lot of sighted people just can't imagine how a blind person can function fully and particularly in job application situations an employer might close their eyes and think, gosh, uh, if I couldn't see, I couldn't do this job. Therefore, neither can this blind person who's applying. And one of the criticisms that I've read of mindfulness uh, meditation, there was a book you've probably read that was published recently called Mindfulness. And one of the criticisms I've read is that it acts as a kind of a disincentive for people to change their world. If we simply accept the world as it is, that uh, we would have no advocacy, essentially. Um, so how should those who are discriminated against, and this, I guess, could apply to women, to racial minorities, to disabled people, how do you reconcile living in the moment and being at peace with improving the world and advocating and standing up for change? Yeah, no, it's a really deep question, um, this balance between fully accepting and appreciating the moment as it is without trying to change, but at the same time, within a greater framework of, look, I'm still trying to progress and I'm still trying to change things. Um, and I, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive or contradictory. I think the best way to have an impact in the world and change your circumstances and change the perspective of those around you is from a place of presence. 
Albert Einstein has this great quote I love where he says, you can't solve a problem from the same level of consciousness that created it. And often I feel like, especially in America where I am, like the political world, it's it's just, a you know, everyone's arguing and no one's really hearing each other out. And it's all from the same state of consciousness. And so I think if you become fully present and you meditation is just so good for dropping into a state of mind from which you can act in in a way that has more of an impact. And so this doesn't mean we need to kind of bend to the will of people. You know, you're not, mindfulness is not about rolling over and accepting uh, things the way they are. It's more just treating everything with complete presence and, and acting in a way that handling each moment in the best way that it needs to be handled. So, you know, there's like a, an anecdote of this meditation teacher, Goenka, who has a, a very famous method of meditation. And he was, he yelled at one of his students and someone said, Goenka, that, you know, you're supposed to be this calm meditation teacher. How could you explode in rage like that? And he said, I, I'm doing what's called for in the moment. I'm not actually acting from a place of hatred, just what was needed at that moment, they weren't taking their practice seriously. And so what was needed for them was this kind of strict response. And so it's just acting from a place of presence that can actually have a bigger impact, I think, than acting from a place of anger or hatred towards other people. And meditation can be so good for that and just a way of training that that mindset that and the intention that leads to the action, which can be very bold or brave or, you know, might even involve a physical response if it's needed. But it's just what's needed for that moment and nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, I do wonder what the impact would be on politics if some world leaders were to practice meditation. <laughs> One of the things that I have noticed uh, in my own practice is that while I still advocate, I think I advocate much more constructively in the sense that when you're letting the ego drive things, what you're after is a sort of a sometimes a personal uh, victory, a kind of a one-upmanship, cutting people down to size. And I think what meditation helps you to do is look at the situation from another person's point of view and think about what might they be thinking and how do I actually best get this outcome without necessarily making someone feel defeated. So I, I think it just allows you to approach situations through a slightly different lens. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'd heavily agree with that. One thing that's just occurred to me is that sometimes I do hear on social media, that kind of thing, that um, people wonder whether meditation is compatible with their particular religious worldview. Is that something that you find that particularly people who are devoutly adhering to a religious worldview wonder whether meditation is somehow appropriate for them? Yeah, I, I think it's compatible with any religion. And in fact, it has been a, a, a major part of a lot of the world's religions, at least in their more mystical side. So like, you know, mystical Christians meditated, Kabbalah and Judaism, um, the Sufis, and obviously Hinduism and Buddhism. But I think it's compatible because it doesn't require any, you don't, you're not required to believe anything or to take on any beliefs, at least in the secular form of meditation that I practice. In fact, 
the Buddha was famous for saying, don't take anything I say on faith, just come and see for yourself. And, you know, if you follow this system for training your mind, you will get happier. You don't have to believe anything for this to work for you. And I think increasingly this is, you know, in in the West, this is the framework that's used. And this is the framework that I use is meditation is actually seeing through Uh, your delusions. It's not trying to give you a new set of beliefs or delude you or psychologically prime you in some way to see the world through a certain lens. It's just a system for training the mind. And so that can be complementary to any religion. I mean, these are just time-tested ways to enhance your experience of the world. And they fit with the values of, I think, you know, at least every religion that I've studied. Um, which I think there's a lot of commonalities between the religions. If you look at just their core values and what their core, you know, you know, Jesus was saying a lot of the same things as the Buddha in terms of, you know, love thy neighbor and, and this type of thing. And that's those common human reasonable values can be applied, I think, across the board. And, and so meditation is not trying to get you to believe anything on faith. It, it's very, uh, it can be very secular. Now, tell me about FitMind. In such a crowded market, why did you decide to enter the meditation app space? Yeah, I kind of felt like there were two extreme ends of the spectrum where, on the one hand, you had what I would pejoratively call McMindfulness, like the book that you mentioned, where meditation was often being dumbed down a little bit or just watered down heavily. I don't want to put down like those companies or anything, because I think it's a good thing in the long run that they've helped popularize meditation. But I, you know, that's one end of the extreme. And on the other, you would have these very intense meditation, silent retreats and stuff that take a lot of uh, time and investment and aren't feasible for your average person with a, a job and responsibilities. And so I kind of saw what I, what I, where I saw room for, or at least the app that didn't exist that I wished had existed um, when I had started meditating was this middle, uh, middle of the road that wasn't so extreme that it was requiring a massive commitment, wasn't religious, it wasn't going to require you know hours and hours a day of meditation, but it also wasn't going to just teach the surface level stuff. FitMind starts there with just the basics, but it gradually gets into some of the more deep end kind of advanced practices. And I think it's important that at least folks are exposed to that stuff and know that it exists. And like I said, a a lot of these traditionally what are considered more advanced practices are actually no harder to learn. And I I really see them as just different, just as there's different exercises that they're, they're just other tools for training the mind that haven't made their way to the West yet, at least not widely, not widely taught on apps or at all. And so that's kind of the gap that I saw in the market, I guess. And, and really it was just a personal, like I didn't see an app that I would really want to use. And so I tried to create that through FitMind. I think a good analogy here is on the McMindfulness end of the spectrum, you have something that's certainly helpful for folks, but it's kind of like someone is like going for a five minute jog on the treadmill or something. And so that's certainly a good thing that they're exercising. And then on the other extreme, you have folks who are doing these silent retreats, that's kind of like the marathon runners. And with FitMind, I wanted to create something that's in between those two extremes, which is like, hey, this is like a real exercise routine for your mind in the sense of like real meditation practice that's going to have 
substantial results. It requires a little bit of commitment. You know, it's people who want to take their practice more seriously than just, you know, a couple minutes a day and really going into the different techniques and learning about the psychology and the neuroscience and just really taking it a little bit deeper. But then, you know, that this will be, this will appeal hopefully to people who are really type A and really want to uh, learn the stuff. And then I have some resources in there for folks who then get excited and want to go even deeper into the more deep end stuff, which requires a lot of time. So this, I, what I tried to create was this kind of middle way between the two extremes. It's a fantastic app. I wish I had had it when I started getting into this because I started off with the breath-based meditation, really the John Kabat-Zinn stuff, and I think he's he's brilliant at at what he's doing in that those techniques. But then I found myself thinking, there's got to be some more here. I was hungry for more, and I found myself making my way to mantra-based meditations and various techniques that I now use. And then, but but you've got it all in the one app, uh, and take people through a very logical, progressive kind of journey, so that if you've always thought oh, I might get around to doing this, and now I'm self-isolated, I've got the time to do it. You've got what is essentially a whole course, very sensibly laid out. Is it static, or do you continue to? add new content to the app over time? Yeah, every week I try to publish a new training and a new lesson. So for folks who haven't tried the FitMind app, this is, uh, I've paired trainings which are like guided meditations with little, you know, two to five minute lessons that explain the technique and how to apply it in your everyday life and then give like a little challenge afterwards which is just a prompt to apply the method at some point during your day. And so, yeah, I, I try to add new content every week, like a new technique that I've been working on or something that I learned recently. And we'll just continue to, to keep adding new stuff. And my hope is that folks keep going back to previous trainings too, because, you know, these are really things that can take a lifetime to master. Um, you know, I certainly don't consider myself like a master. I mean, there's just always room for improvement. So I'm trying to create a catalog of all these different methods and hopefully clearly explained so that the idea is you'll learn them on the app and then just keep working on them, the ones that resonate and find a practice that works really well for you. Is it available for Android as well as iOS? No, we don't have an Android version right now. Um, it's going to cost a fair amount to develop. So what I'm making is an online course which I'm hoping will be complete in the next couple of weeks. So folks who are on Android could do the online version, which I hope would be accessible. You're operating on a subscription model, so you can download the app for free and give it a spin, and then there's an, a subscription model. Yeah, that's right. And I'll just say here, because we've been trying to uh, kind of broadcast this, but if anyone can afford the subscription then just shoot an email to us. It's a team at fitmind.co, uh, F-I-T-M-I-N-D.co. And we'll just give you, a, we'll just unlock the app for you. So I know a lot of folks are studying, especially struggling financially in this time, or just in general, if the subscription is uh, is too much for you, then then just don't hesitate to reach out. Well, that That is incredibly generous. And is this your full-time gig now or what What else are you doing besides putting FitMind together? Yeah, FitMind is my full-time focus and I also give corporate workshops, which right now have turned into more webinar formats. 
uh, for companies. So like two days ago, Uber wanted me to talk about stress management. And that was just like an online webinar for them. And then just really focused on uh, advancing my personal practice through um, studying with different teachers. And I had some travel plans to go to Nepal, but I think all of that will be on hold. So there's a nice kind of chance. I think we're all kind of in a, a some kind of self-retreat right now anyways. And then on the side, I've, I'm in the middle of a master's in neuroscience and want to continue to uh, pursue either neuroscience or psychology from an academic lens just to integrate these different areas of Western science and the Eastern methods. I think that fusion is so exciting to me. Yes, I read a really interesting book called Destructive Emotions where they got, you probably read this, where they've got the Dalai Lama in with a bunch of scientists and they were doing a lot of analysis on um, uh, new information. I think Daniel Goldman, actually, the emotional intelligence guru, put that together a mm. few years ago. It was very interesting to see this fusion between traditional uh, meditation practice and science. I wonder if you have any comments on the COVID-19 situation and how meditation might assist, because I think a lot of people are struggling with accepting the world as it is right now. They're totally disrupted. Many people are quite frightened, particularly, I think, depending on where in the world they are and whether they feel they're being led out of this crisis in a way that makes sense to them. It's a very unsettling time for humankind right now. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And you know, as far as how meditation can help, I think there's a few benefits because it can seem in a time of crisis, like it would just be useless to sit quietly by yourself. But there's a, a few ways that meditation can help us. One is that it has been shown to just help deal with strong emotions in a way that you start to observe the motions and they start to have less of a, an effect on you. You start to be less reactive to them and that you start to suffer less from them. So that it can be very helpful for any kind of anxious thoughts or pressing thoughts and all the negativity that a lot of us are feeling right now. And then counterproductively, it actually makes us feel more connected to other people too. So right now, a lot of us are alone in our homes or, or just with a couple of people. Loneliness is, is actually something I think our society was already struggling with, and this has just compounded it. But meditation has been shown to improve or lessen feelings of loneliness. And it's very counterintuitive because you're sitting alone uh, for the most part, but you can start to feel more connected to humanity, to other people. And I think that's because as you observe your own mind, you start to realize that, uh, well, at least a, a big insight that, that I've had um, that I think everyone starts to realize by observing their own mind is just that everyone is doing their best. <laughs> like everyone is doing their best to be happy. And a lot of that action it comes from a place of delusion, but that doesn't mean everyone's not doing their best. And so it generates a lot of compassion for other people in that way. And um, and then another way that, it, that meditation can help us is that it actually improves your immune system. And so just in, in that sense, you know, it calms your sympathetic nervous system. You spend less time in a fight or flight state, which is really hard on your body and can lead to a lot of illness. So I think in that sense, it's just, it's good hygiene, uh, or it's, it's just another tool for uh, being in good health during this time. And, and then finally, just um, generating a, a state of mind, like we talked about earlier, where you can really act from a place of presence. 
I love the way that the Stoics think about this, which is similar to uh, how a lot of the meditation traditions talk about how the past and the future are just a dream. Like those are literally just thoughts. And all that you can control is how you act in this moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. So it's really futile to to be worried about the future and not in the sense that you shouldn't think about the future, shouldn't plan for the scenarios, but just recognizing what's within your control and what's out of your control. And if something's within your control, then you can do something about it. And if it's out of your control, then it's it's useless to to worry about it. Uh, you might think of solutions, but it's worth it's useless to keep repeating, you know, a, a really negative story. And so I think meditation can help us see through those really harmful, uh, repetitive thought stories that we're telling ourselves, and start to bring us into a, a place where we can really act in a way that's actually helpful and and isn't coming from a place of fear or panic or. Uh, hatred or anger. It's coming from a place of what can I do in this moment for myself, for others, and really acting from that best self. Um, so I, I think meditation is is a key tool right now. And then another, just a, a final little way it can help is it can just help us be aware of our hygiene. So like, you might not realize that your hand was, you know, went and touched your mouth, unless you're being really aware throughout the day. So unless you're bringing that mindset cultivated on the meditation cushion into the day and you're aware of where you're putting your hands and how you're, how far away you are from other people and all these things can be enhanced by just the self-awareness that comes from meditation. Listening to you and that excellent explanation, it does pose a question that I'm sure some people are thinking, and that is that if you can come to terms with the facts that the past is the past, so there's nothing you can do to change it, does that somehow absolve you in a dangerous way, of responsibility for actions you may have taken in the past that may have caused considerable hurt to other people, you know, that you've you've basically been a real prat at some time in your life mm-hmm. and that you may well be able to say, okay, well, it's past now, so, you know, too bad, I can't do anything about it. How do we reconcile our need to take responsibility for our actions with living in the moment? Yeah, I think I think it's just skillfully handling that in a way so if you've done something to wrong someone you might think well can i apologize have i really thought of you know have i really changed since then do i actually feel sorry for what i've done but then after those you know after you've learned from the lesson i think there's no reason to keep beating yourself up i mean look i think the way that i've come to understand the mind psychologically is that the most important thing is intention and being well intentioned and I think a lot of the religious scriptures, when they talk about, you know, when, when Jesus says, like, as soon as you accept me into your life, like your life will get a lot better. Well, you can think about that psychologically in a way where it's just saying, as soon as you have the intention to be a good person, your life gets a lot better. And there's a lot of examples in the meditation traditions where there was, for example, there was this guy who had murdered a bunch of people and... Um, this was a, an extreme story where he goes to the Buddha and starts following the Buddha's ways and he like reaches enlightenment. And again, these, these are just stories, but the point is like, no matter your past, what you can control is who you become from here forward. And obviously that doesn't mean that if you haven't behaved poorly in the past, that you shouldn't try to fix those wrongs or you shouldn't try to apologize to those people, but it just means you can forgive yourself and psychologically, as soon as you've changed and as soon as you've just 
made that intention. Like I'm going to be a good person from here on out. I'm going to do everything I can to play my role in this life and, and help others and do the best I can for those that depend on me. As soon as you've made that firm commitment, I think psychologically there's some kind of shift that takes place where it's like life becomes a lot easier. I just think what's important is that everyone realizes that it's never too late to just make that decision that I'm going to be a good person. Even if you are telling yourself a story like I'm not a good person, it's like, well, hey, how about trying on the other? How about trying on the other role? How about you just how about you just pretend to be a good person until you actually become one? The annoying thing about cliches is that they're often true, and it is true what they say about today being the first day of the rest of your life, right? Yeah, and I think even this is the first moment of the rest of your life. (laughs) Now, you have FitMind in the App Store, so that's all one word, FitMind. It's easy to find, and you said you had a podcast. Can you tell us a bit about that as we wrap up? Yeah, FitMind is the app, and then the podcast is the FitMind podcast. Again, that FitMind, one word. And um, I just interview a lot of experts on the mind. It's really a, a range of folks. They could be neuroscientists, meditation masters. Uh, I've had on some uh, psychologists, even like a big wave surfer, the guy who surfed the biggest wave, the wave in the has the world record for the largest wave. And he was talking about like flow states. So it's just a range of people who talk about the mind and how to train the mind and the scientific research that's coming out about how we can improve our minds. And uh, and so, yeah, if, if any of that interests you, um, most recently I had on this guy named Daniel Ingram, who controversially claims to be fully enlightened and they're studying his brain at Harvard. And uh, he was uh, quite a character. So that's coming out this next week. That is quite a bold statement. Um, <laughs> I'll have to listen to that. Yeah, I haven't checked out the podcast yet, so I will do that. Uh, I just want to wrap up by thanking you for this app. I was so thrilled to find it, and then to find that it was so accessible was just uh, icing on the cake. But it's a great app, and for people who have sort of thought, you know, I'll get round to this one day, it's a very good way to introduce yourself. It starts with quite short sessions and then works up to you you max out about 15 minutes i think right yeah 15 and then there's a couple of ones in there the pro trainings there's a couple that are uh 30 45 and 60 minutes oh okay i I have yet to get there so i'm still i'm working my way through the app so okay so that's the fit mind app liam thank you so much and wish um, you and yours all the very best during these difficult times and i appreciate you coming on the podcast yeah thanks so much for having me jonathan really honored to uh speak with you and and uh thanks to the listeners for hearing me out wishing you all well to contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.